0: And welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin, I'd just like to apologize if my voice sounds a little off today. I'm just getting over a mild illness, and my voice still isn't 100% back to normal. Anyway, I'd also like to take this opportunity to congratulate you for reaching the final episode of the series and to thank you for the overwhelmingly positive response you've given to the last four episodes. It's really meant a lot to me. The next series I have planned will cover the Meiji Restoration and the history of mid-19th century Japan more broadly. So, if that sounds at all interesting to you, be sure to tune in again in two weeks to catch the first episode. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the narrative for today. In the last episode of our series on the life and times of American politician Huey Long, we began with the start of Huey's tenure in the United States Senate. Huey's outspoken nature and radical politics alienated him from his fellow senators. He was seen alternatively as either a laughingstock or as a threat. The principal cause for which Huey fought throughout the duration of his Senate career was the redistribution of wealth. At the time, America was in the throes of the Great Depression, and Huey earnestly believed that redistributing the country's wealth from the ultra wealthy and to the average American was the solution to the seemingly insurmountable issues that the country now faced. In this belief, however, Huey differed somewhat from the newly elected president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. At first, Huey had been a fervent supporter of Roosevelt, believing him to be the presidential candidate who was most amenable to his economic agenda. He worked hard on Roosevelt's behalf during the 1932 campaign, and was initially delighted to see Roosevelt win the election. However, as he so often did, Huey became disillusioned with the man that he had helped into office. For the first hundred days of the Roosevelt administration, Huey voted for nearly all of the president's New Deal legislation, intended to alleviate the worst effects of the Great Depression. Huey would be bitterly disappointed when Roosevelt did not return the favor, and put pressure on the Senate Democrats to support Huey's wealth redistribution proposals. Huey and the president eventually had a public falling out in October of 1933, and Huey went from being one of Roosevelt's most ardent supporters to one of his harshest critics. While the immediate cause of the break was over the issue of federal patronage in the state of Louisiana, the truth of the matter was that the two men's worldviews were fundamentally misaligned. Huey was too radical for Roosevelt, and Roosevelt was too moderate for Huey. Perhaps realizing that he would not be able to enact his wealth redistribution proposals through conventional means, Huey devised a new plan, the Share Our Wealth movement, The slogan of this new society was taken from Huey's 1928 gubernatorial campaign, Every Man a King, and its program was much the same as what Huey had been advocating for throughout his Senate career. Taxes on the wealthy, and redistribution of their fortunes to the masses. Huey envisioned the Share Wealth Society as a mass movement, and, despite criticisms from both the right and left, the Share Wealth Society proved to be massively popular with the public, reaching 8 million members at its peak. But while Huey was reaching new heights of popularity nationwide thanks to this program, his split with President Roosevelt was beginning to result in some serious political consequences. The most immediate of these was the dissolution of his alliance with the old regulars of New Orleans. As previously described, the old regulars were a powerful political machine that, prior to Huey's election, effectively ran the politics of New Orleans, and practically those of the entire state. Huey and the old regulars had made a sort of truce in 1930, shortly after he won election to the Senate. Together with their backing, Huey's political machine was practically able to dominate the state of Louisiana. However, now, three years later, the old regulars were once more avowedly hostile to Huey and his allies. The issue had to do, as I said, with Huey's break with President Roosevelt, Roosevelt was quite popular in the city of New Orleans, having carried the city by a margin of over 80%. Personally, New Orleans' mayor and head of the old regulars T. Semmes Walmsley had praised Roosevelt publicly, even after Huey split with him. In more concrete terms, however, the issue came down once more to that of patronage. Roosevelt had refused to allow Huey any degree of control over the federal patronage in Louisiana, That meant that Huey could not control the appointment of federal jobs in his own state. The old regulars depended very heavily on federal patronage to keep the city of New Orleans, and their political apparatus itself, going. The complete loss of federal patronage was a completely unacceptable proposition to them. In December, Malmsley and Huey had a series of meetings wherein Malmsley attempted to renegotiate the terms of their alliance. He pressed Huey for more autonomy for the city of New Orleans, but Huey would not give it to him. Both men would walk out of these meetings entirely unsatisfied with the results. The following year, the old regulars voted unanimously to sever all political ties with Huey. Huey quickly saw a chance for revenge, however. The following month, an election was to be held for the mayorship of New Orleans. Malmsley himself would be up for re-election, but given the degree to which his organization controlled the politics of the city, his victory was all but assured. Against the advice of his confidants, Huey decided to get involved in the race, putting forward his own candidate, a prominent levee engineer named John Clorer, to run against Malmsley. In the final days before the election, Huey traveled to New Orleans to take charge of Clorer's campaign personally. In the speeches that Huey gave during this time, he spent most of his energy attacking Malmsley, using his new favorite insulting epithet against him, Turkey Head. He hardly, if ever, mentioned Clorer by name. The election, held on January 23rd, resulted in an embarrassing defeat for Huey. Malmsley won, with 45% of the vote. In fact, this was the first major political setback that Huey had suffered since the impeachment debacle of 1928. Anti-long newspapers heralded Malmsley's victory in the mayoral election as the beginning of the end for Huey and his regime. Huey's enemies, emboldened by what they perceived to be Huey's rapidly plummeting political fortunes, began to hatch a daring plot to put themselves in control of the state government, right from under Huey's nose. Their plan involved displacing the pro-Long representative Alan Ellender as Speaker of the House, and using that to reorganize the legislature. Once that was firmly in their control, they would move to impeach the governor and his lieutenant, thereby making the new anti-Long Speaker of the House acting governor by default. They planned to accomplish their takeover of the legislature through both the carrot and the stick, they worked feverishly behind the scenes to buy all the fence-sitters over to their cause. The anti-longs had even managed to secure the defection of none other than Huey's brother, Earl. Earl, who was still upset with Huey for denying him the lieutenant governorship, tentatively fell in with those who were seeking to oust his brother from power. Those legislators that they could not buy, they would intimidate into submission. The plan called for 500 heavily armed men to post up outside the Capitol while the deliberations took place inside. The threat was obvious. The Anti-Longs put their plan into action on May 13th, 1934. That day, the legislature convened, as was planned. They walked into the Capitol that day while being stared down by the gun-toting Anti-Longs. Immediately upon hearing of the armed demonstration outside the Capitol, Huey ordered the mobilization of the National Guard. But Speaker of the House Ellender demurred, pointing out that such a move would lead to completely avoidable violence. Huey stood down. He would deal with these attempted coup d'etat through political methods. He offered the usual complement of patronage, favors, material goods, and other such things in order to win back legislators to his camp. Ultimately, many of those who had been prepared to betray Huey wavered because they were aware that he and his program were still massively popular among the common people especially those in rural districts. By the time the anti-Longs were ready to make their move, they realized that their support had completely collapsed out from under them. Defeated and demoralized, they ordered their goons outside to stand down and came away from the legislative session empty-handed. Meanwhile, tensions continued to ratchet up between the Long camp and the old regulars. Things came to a head on July 30th, 1934, when Huey ordered a detachment of 50 National Guardsmen to take over the office of the Registrar of Voters in New Orleans. Huey's exact motives for ordering the takeover of the Registrar's office are not known for certain, but given that this was done in advance of the Democratic primaries that were to be held on September 11th, one can surmise that his intention was to ensure that the election would go the way that he wanted to in New Orleans. His defeat in the mayoral race early that year had seriously embarrassed him, and he was determined to make up for it by making sure that his candidates won election to Congress. Very soon after the National Guardsmen had occupied these offices, a dozen police cars pulled up to the scene. These New Orleans police officers were loyal first and foremost to Mayor Walmsley and the old regulars. The policemen surrounded the building, and a tense standoff ensued. Walmsley, calling out to Huey as though he were present, declared, quote, I warn you, Huey Long, you cringing coward, that if a life is spent in defense of this city and its right of self-governance, that you shall pay the penalty of the other carpetbaggers who came before you, Completely disregarding this threat, Huey then ordered 2,500 more National Guardsmen to completely occupy the city. Huey had effectively declared war on New Orleans. Across the city, policemen and National Guardsmen stared one another down from the barrels of their guns, with neither side willing to spill the first blood. Huey justified this invasion by claiming that he was bringing much-needed law and order to the city. In the midst of his occupation of New Orleans, on September 1st, with a little over a week to go before the election, Huey opened up a new line of attack against the old regulars. He had the state legislature create a special committee, tasked with investigating the corruption that was supposedly rampant throughout New Orleans. He had himself appointed as the head counsel. Huey's hope in ordering the creation of this committee was was to not only prove the charge of corruption, but to tie them explicitly to Walmsley and the old regulars, so as to damage their reputation and to diminish their chances in the election. As counsel, Huey went to New Orleans and took personal charge of the investigation. During this time, he gave several radio addresses to the state at large, informing them of the commission's findings. He opened each address by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, it's Huey P. Long again telling you how we're going to clean out this rotten bunch of grafters, end quote. To practically no one's surprise, the commission did indeed uncover widespread evidence of corruption throughout the city. Witnesses called before the commission attested to the widespread existence of gambling dens, brothels, and other houses of ill repute. Even more damning was the accusation that these institutions were very well known to city officials and were allowed to continue operating in exchange for a cut of the profits. By the estimations of the commission, Walmsley and the old regulars took in about $13 million worth of graft every year. Huey adjourned the commission a couple days before the election. They had accomplished their goal. They had proven the existence of vice and corruption in New Orleans, and had successfully tied it to Walmsley and the old regulars. It was widely feared that election day would finally see the outbreak of violence between the pro-Long National Guards and the anti-Long City Police, as both factions would attempt to influence the results of the election. However, election day came and went without any major incidents. The commander of the National Guard and the police chief had both agreed to stand down, at least for the day. The day after the election, the occupying National Guardsmen began to stream out of the city by train. Huey could not have wished for better results. All four of his major candidates, two incumbent congressmen, one candidate for the state Supreme Court, and one candidate for the State Public Service Commission, all won handily against their old regular endorsed opponents. Going into the new year of 1935, Huey had very much regained his confidence. With his victory in the September 11th primary of the previous year, he had avenged the embarrassing setback of the mayoral election the previous January. While it had previously seemed as though the Kingfish's political fortunes were waning, By 1935, Huey was arguably at the peak of his power. He believed himself to be practically invincible, and as proof of this, in late 1934, he attempted to accomplish what had nearly gotten him removed from office five years ago, a manufacturer's tax on the refinement of crude oil. The tax did make sense from a fiscal perspective, but one has to imagine that Huey was relishing the opportunity to exact some measure of revenge against the company that had cost him a small fortune, and led the impeachment effort against him all those years ago. Huey had the proposed oil tax buried within a much larger bill comprising over 100 pages. As a testament to how much more powerful Huey had grown over the last half of a decade, the oil tax, which back in 1929 took over 20 days to be defeated in the legislature and led directly to his impeachment, took a mere 20 minutes to be passed in 1934. When an anti-Long legislature attempted to voice his objection to the bill, he was roundly ignored. However, the political fallout from the new oil tax was almost immediate. On New Year's Day, 1935, the Standard Oil Company announced that it would lay off 1,000 employees from its refinery in Baton Rouge, and vaguely intimated that they might move operations somewhere else entirely. When informed of this news, Huey told reporters that if Standard Oil wanted to leave, they could, quote, go to hell and stay there, quote. Huey had even mulled over the possibility of seizing and expropriating Standard Oil's refinery, and using it to create a new state-run oil company. These threats forced Standard Oil's representatives to the negotiating table. Huey's terms were rather simple and not nearly as harsh as the company had perhaps expected. If Standard Oil agreed to take 80% of the crude oil it refined from Louisiana, rather than importing it more cheaply from Mexico, then Huey would see to it that the company would receive a tax rebate equivalent to four of the five cents that he planned to levy per barrel of oil. These terms were more or less acceptable to Standard Oil, so they not only agreed to use Louisiana oil, but also to bring back the 1,000 workers it had laid off at the beginning of the year. But by the time that Huey was able to announce that he and Standard Oil had reached a compromise, it was already too late. The citizenry of Baton Rouge was, understandably, not too pleased with this turn of events. As I explained in previous episodes, Standard Oil was the single largest employer in the Louisiana capital. The prospect of them packing up operations and moving somewhere else was entirely unacceptable. Unaware that they had been rehired, a group of disgruntled former Standard Oil employees held a mass anti-long rally in Baton Rouge. They were led by a man named Ernest Bourgeois, a young petroleum engineer, and loyal strikebreaker for Standard Oil. The demands of this group began moderately enough. They wanted to see the oil tax repealed. However, as soon as the rally was joined by more and more anti-Long agitators, its purpose began to shift. Before long, they were calling for the repeal of all laws that they deemed to be dictatorial, and before long, one of the protesters cried out, "...we ought to hang every last legislator, commencing with our so-called governor." They were openly calling for an end to the reign of Huey Long, and they were not afraid to threaten violent action to get their way. Not even the news of Huey's compromise with the company could dissipate the crowd's bloodlust. Those present at the rally organized themselves into a new group that they dubbed the Square Deal Association. The rally ended with a resolution by the Square Deal Association to call on Governor Allen to repeal every law enacted by the dictator Huey Long. Bourgeois, now president of the association, doubled down on the threats that were issued earlier in the day. Quote, we are not asking this, we are demanding it. And if any attempt is made to stop this organization, there will be more bloodshed than this state has seen in its entire history. End quote. Very quickly, anti long elements across the state began to form square deal associations of their own. The square dealers' ranks expanded to include some of Huey's most prominent opponents such as Mayor Walmsley of New Orleans and former Governor Ruffin Pleasant and his wife. Worryingly, they began to arm themselves and form into militia groups. Their plan was to march on the Capitol and force Governor Allen to accede to their demands. Huey rushed back to the Capitol from Washington, D.C. when he received word of the rapidly radicalizing Square Dealers. Publicly, Huey downplayed the threat that they posed to him, saying of their plans to march on the Capitol, quote, March Those fellows are too lazy to march. They won't go anywhere unless you give them a buggy or a rickshaw. Privately, however, Huey recognized the threat that they posed and moved immediately to eliminate the threat before it got out of hand. On January 25th, the square dealers made their move. 300 of them, clad in blue shirts and armed with pistols and rifles, marched on the Baton Rouge courthouse. They quickly seized the building and barricaded themselves within it. In response, Huey ordered the immediate deployment of the National Guard, and within the hour, 800 National Guard troops took up defensive positions around the building, daring the square dealers to fire the first shot. When they learned the extent to which they were outnumbered and outgunned, the square dealers mostly lost their nerve and abandoned the courthouse. Huey had Governor Allen declare martial law in Baton Rouge. While this was in effect, and it remained in effect for six months, The carrying of firearms in the capital was forbidden, newspapers were forbidden to criticize the government, and crowds of two or more people were prohibited. The following day, 350 heavily armed square dealers congregated outside the Baton Rouge airport in direct defiance of the Declaration of Martial Law. Huey, who had advance notice of the meeting, ordered 500 National Guards to the scene. The National Guardsmen deployed in battle formation and hurled tear gas canisters at the square dealers. The protest quickly fell apart. Half the square dealers dispersed into the nearby woods, while the other half surrendered on the spot. There were no casualties in the Battle of the Airport, as it came to be known, save for a lone square dealer who was wounded in the arm by a shot fired by one of his compatriots in the confusion of the retreat. The square dealers' defeat here marked the effective end of the organization altogether. Huey had thoroughly defeated his opponents yet again. Starting in 1935, Huey's attacks on President Roosevelt and his administration increased in both frequency and intensity. Time and again, Huey took over the Senate floor to unleash devastating critiques of the president, all the while making no secret of the highly personal nature of his dispute with him. Throughout the course of the new year, Huey engaged in no less than five separate filibusters intended on obstructing New Deal legislation. His greatest performance of all time occurred on June 12th. The Senate was supposed to convene that day to vote on an extension and modification of the National Recovery Act. The National Recovery Act, or the NRA as it was commonly abbreviated, was one of the most ambitious pieces of New Deal legislation. So ambitious, in fact, that the Supreme Court had actually ruled it unconstitutional in May of that year. The NRA was rather wide in scope, but its main provision allowed the president to have greater control over private industry. Huey opposed the act because he felt that it could be used by Roosevelt to give more federal jobs to his political opponents in Louisiana. Crowds of people flooded the galleries to watch the kingfish speak. Amongst the throngs of people were a contingent of Shriners, whose convention was in town at the time, and who gave the whole affair a very carnivalesque feel. Huey began his lengthy speech by giving a lecture on the United States Constitution, which he claimed, quote, "...in these New Deal days has become ancient and forgotten lore," end quote. He painstakingly analyzed the entire document, article by article. Once he had finished with the Constitution, Huey turned to the real topic of the day, the NRA. He absolutely let loose on the act, calling it fascistic in nature, and comparing it to the policies of Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. More humorously, he gave a list of suggested acronyms that NRA should stand for, such as National Racketeering Association, National Ruin Administration, Never Roosevelt Again, and Nuts Running America. By the time 10 p.m. had rolled around, Huey had been speaking for over 10 hours and had exhausted all the topics on which he had planned to speak. His Senate colleagues, having suffered hour after hour of Huey's speech, were beginning to lose their patience. Senator Hiram Johnson of California wrote a letter to his son at this time, quote, "...we have a wretched exhibition here, recurrently, of the crazy man from Louisiana trying to run a one-man filibuster. There is neither point nor object nor reason for his speech. Nobody knows what he is trying to do, and I doubt that he knows himself." End quote. Noticing that some of the senators were beginning to get up and leave, Huey suggested to Vice President John Nance Garner that they be compelled to stay awake and listen to him speak, unless they were otherwise excused. Garner replied, jokingly, that such an action would count as cruel and unusual punishment, and therefore as a violation of their Eighth Amendment rights. Still unwilling to relinquish the floor, Huey solicited topics of discussion from the audience. At their request, he talked at length about such figures as Frederick the Great, Victor Hugo, and Judah P. Benjamin. Still stalling for time, Huey decided he would graciously share with his colleagues some of his favorite recipes. He described in great detail how to make fried oysters, pot liquor, and Roquefort cheese dressing. As the next morning began to dawn, Huey was becoming visibly fatigued. Finding that he was now unable to continue, he made a break for the restroom. While he was gone, the other senators took control of the floor and quickly called the NRA bill to a vote. It passed 41 to 13. Clocking in at 15 and a half hours long, Huey's filibuster of June 12, 1935, had been the second longest in Senate history to date, and as of the current year, it remains in the top ten. In early 1935, Huey began to hint that he harbored ambitions to run for president in the upcoming election in 1936. Although he never had the chance to officially declare his candidacy, He made several vague statements to the press and crowds at his rallies, hinting towards his plan. With the benefit of retrospect, one can clearly see that Huey was putting very concrete plans into motion as early as the spring of 1935. It was during this time that he wrote his second book. The book's title, My First Days in the White House, left absolutely no illusions as to what it was exactly that Huey hoped to do. Huey began the book by detailing his ideal presidential cabinet— Senator William Borah of Idaho would serve as Secretary of State. General Smedley Butler would serve as Secretary of War. He even planned to appoint two former presidents to his cabinet, with Herbert Hoover acting as Secretary of the Treasury, and, most interestingly, his rival, Franklin Roosevelt, acting as Secretary of the Navy. Huey then wrote of his ambitious plans once in office. He would create a public works program to p- provide millions of unemployed workers with high-paying government jobs. He would place utilities such as banks and railroads under complete government control and nationalize their assets. He would create a new socialized health care system and direct billions of federal dollars to the individual states to subsidize education. And finally, President Long's crowning achievement would be the creation of the Share Our Wealth Corporation, a government agency dedicated to the massive redistribution of the country's wealth. My First Days in the White House, although it was not published in Huey's Lifetime, provides a rather interesting glimpse into what could have been. Indeed, Huey's preparation for the 1936 election involved more than mere flights of fantasy. He was actively working to build up a nationwide base of support. Winning the presidency in 1936 would be a rather daunting task. There was every indication that Roosevelt intended to run for re-election. He remained immensely popular across the country. A direct challenge to Roosevelt in the Democratic primary was sure to result in a defeat for Huey, as an incumbent president has only lost his party's primary once in the entire duration of American history. Huey knew that he would not be able to win the nomination of the Republican Party either, so realistically only one option lay open to him, running a third-party campaign. However, this too would be somewhat unprecedented. A third party, it is worth noting, has never won a presidential election in American history. This did not deter Huey. Thanks to the massive popularity of the Sharewell Society, he was rather confident in his ability to secure victory not only in the state of Louisiana, but in the southeast United States at large. He also believed that he would perform well in the Great Plains states, where he'd been quite well received during the 1932 presidential campaign. The problem Huey now faced was garnering enough support in other regions of the country to secure victory in the Electoral College. Luckily for Huey, he was not the only national figure who felt that Roosevelt and the New Deal did not go far enough. Throughout 1935, Huey began to seek out strategic alliances with the most prominent of these other figures. One of these men was Father Charles Coughlin. Coughlin was a Catholic priest based in the greater Detroit area. He was known as the Radio Priest, because he had a weekly radio broadcast called The Golden Hour of the Shrine of the Little Flower, which boasted an impressive listenership of 30 million people. Much like Huey, Coughlin had started out as an enthusiastic supporter of Roosevelt during the 1932 election, but soon reached the conclusion that the president was not willing to go quite far enough. Like Huey, Coughlin had founded his own movement, the National Union for Social Justice. This organization was similarly critical of President Roosevelt's policy, but where it differed from Huey and the Share Our Wealth movement was its prognosis. Coughlin believed that the economic crisis facing the country could be solved primarily through the manipulation of silver prices and the nationalization of the banks. Another critical difference between Father Coughlin and Huey was that Coughlin was far too comfortable with fascism for Huey's taste. Whereas Huey had made a concerted effort to distance himself from both fascism and communism, Coughlin was rather explicit with his praise for both Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. He also believed that the root of the country's economic problems was the Jews' control of the banks. Another ally in a potential 1936 presidential bid was Francis Townsend, architect of the Townsend Plan, Townsend, who was at this point pushing 70 years old, was an advocate for the economic rights of the elderly. The Townsend plan was a proposal quite similar to today's Social Security. Under the plan, every American citizen over the age of 60 was to receive a monthly pension of $200. Although the plan was not very comprehensive, it was nonetheless very popular. Within only two years of publicly proposing this plan, over 3,000 Townsend clubs had been founded nationwide. In California, meanwhile, radical author Upton Sinclair, famous for his 1906 novel The Jungle, had run for governor on a platform called the End Poverty in California Movement, or EPIC, as it was abbreviated. It was perhaps the most comprehensive program of radical reform next to Huey's. It called for, among other things, massive make-work programs, worker control over the manufacturing and agricultural sectors, an overhaul of the pension system, and comprehensive tax reforms. While Sinclair lost the gubernatorial election, his EPIC program remained quite popular among the progressives and working classes of California. The crucial region of the Midwest had an established political tradition of progressivism as well. Third parties such as the Farmer Laborer Party and the Progressive Party had been able to buck the two-party system somewhat and eke out victories for themselves in states such as Minnesota and Wisconsin. The most prominent figures of the Farmer Labor Party were the party leader, Milo Reno, and the governor of Minnesota, Floyd Olson. The Progressive Party, of which the two most prominent members were Wisconsin Senator Robert La Follette and his brother, Philip, the governor, was attempting to win a significant victory on a nationwide level. It is worth noting that individually, none of these figures or their organizations were powerful enough to constitute a serious challenge to the existing political order on their own. It was only by banding together into a new party, with Huey acting as figurehead, of course, that they would be able to create a coalition powerful enough to contend with Roosevelt in the 1936 election. The fear amongst Roosevelt and his advisors was not necessarily that Huey would be able to secure victory outright, but that if he were to go ahead and run a third-party campaign, he would siphon off enough votes from Roosevelt that he would enable the Republican candidate to easily secure victory over the both of them. According to a secret poll commissioned by Postmaster Jim Farley, Huey was, as of early 1935, capable of earning enough votes to deny Roosevelt a victory in the crucial swing states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. It has been suggested that achieving outright victory was not, in fact, Huey's plan. Instead, it is possible that Huey saw this election as a stepping stone to an actually successful presidential run in 1940. He would use the 1936 presidential campaign as yet another opportunity to build up a name for himself on a nationwide level, and he would leverage that popularity into victory in the following election. Nevertheless, Huey's supporters were confident of the possibility of his victory. Gerald L. K. Smith, national head of the Share Our Wealth Society, was once quoted as saying, quote, "As God is my judge, the only way to keep Huey long out of the White House now is to kill him." End quote. Of course. Smith had no idea at the time how prescient of a statement this was. On September 7, 1935, Huey called a special session of the Louisiana State Legislature. He intended to force through no less than 42 different bills, of which only two are relevant to our narrative. One of these bills provided mandatory fines and prison sentences for those found to be in violation of the Tenth Amendment, which grants rights to the individual states. The language of the bill itself was rather vague, but it is plain to see that this was a measure aimed at preventing federal officials from carrying out their jobs. Huey was striking back against Roosevelt and his New Deal agents by enacting a piece of legislation that one newspaper described as, quote, the broadest and boldest defiance of federal authority since the Civil War, end quote. When the bill's author, Huey's attorney George Wallace, protested that he believed the bill to be unconstitutional, Huey merely replied, quote, I don't give a damn. The other relevant piece of legislation was a bill that gerrymandered the electoral district corresponding to the parish of St. Landry, where one of his bitterest opponents, Benjamin Pavi, served as district judge. Despite the highly controversial nature of both of these bills, they managed to secure passage through the legislature without any trouble, along with the extra 40. At about 9:30 that night, a victorious Huey, surrounded by his typical coterie of cronies and bodyguards, strode out from the Senate chamber en route to his office to take care of some piece of business or other. Just as he approached his office, however, a young man wearing big black spectacles and clad in a white linen suit appeared suddenly from behind a pillar and approached Huey, before any of his bodyguards had time to react to the man's presence. He produced a handgun from his jacket pocket and shot Huey at point blank range. Huey let out a scream of pain. Exclaiming that he had been shot, he abruptly turned around and ran for the stairwell at the other end of the hallway. As Huey stumbled down the stairs, he ran into Jimmy O'Connor, a young employee of the Highway Commission. O'Connor, seeing the kingfish obviously wounded, blood coming from his mouth, asked him what had happened, to which Huey replied, quote, Jimmy, my boy, I've been shot. End quote. Huey's bodyguards, meanwhile, unleashed a deadly volley of fire at the assassin, continuing to shoot at his body long after it was clear that he had been killed. An autopsy revealed no less than 60 bullet wounds in the assassin's body. Placing an arm around Huey, O'Connor assisted him to the parking lot, where he flagged down a passing car and helped the wounded kingfish inside. Trying his best to staunch the bleeding, O'Connor yelled at the driver to take them to the Our Lady of the Lake Hospital a few blocks away. As the car sped through the streets of Baton Rouge, Huey wondered aloud, quote, I wonder why he shot me. End quote. The bullet riddled body that lay in the hallway of the Capitol building was still recognizable enough to be identified by an astonished visitor to the Capitol as one Carl Austin Weiss. Indeed, Weiss's motives for this assassination were not readily apparent. Weiss himself was not a politician, he was a doctor who ran a moderately successful practice in Baton Rouge he had never even met Huey in his life. However, a cursory investigation into Weiss's family connections soon revealed the ostensible motive. Weiss's father-in-law was Judge Benjamin Pavey, the same judge who Huey had effectively just removed from office earlier that day. Weiss, who must have known that attacking the kingfish was practically a suicide mission, seemed to have everything to live for. Only 30 years old, Weiss was happily married, and had only become a father not just four months prior. Furthermore, Weiss's family attested that he did not act abnormally whatsoever in the days leading up to the assassination, perhaps suggesting that the act was not premeditated. Weiss's brother, a psychologist, offered the explanation that Weiss did not intend to assassinate Huey when visiting the Capitol that day, but suffered from a brief bout of insanity at the sight of the man who was so bent on ruining his family. While modern historians tend to accept either one of these explanations as true, at the time, while emotions still ran high, Huey's loyal supporters could not help but speculate that there had been a different motive, that Weiss had been in the employ of one of Huey's more powerful political enemies. After all, Roosevelt had told his advisers back in 1933 that Huey was, in his view, one of the two most dangerous men in America, and sooner or later something would have to be done about him. No evidence has since emerged to back up this or any one of the other number of theories that emerged surrounding Huey's assassination. But, of course, since Weiss never had the opportunity to tell his side of the story before he was mercilessly gunned down, we may never know the whole story. Word of the attempt on Huey's life spread rather quickly. As Jimmy O'Connor and a nurse wheeled Huey up to an operating room on the third floor of the Our Lady of the Lake Hospital, Huey's followers raced from across the state to the hospital to attend to the Kingfish. Dozens of Huey's cronies flooded the cramped emergency room, jostling with doctors and nurses to be at his side. One nurse later recalled, quote, What a scene it was. Here was a man dying in a room full of politicians. It was like a vaudeville show. End quote. The doctors on the scene quickly reached the prognosis that if Huey was not operated on, more or less immediately, to halt the internal hemorrhaging, he would die. Two of the state's most skilled surgeons were called in from New Orleans to perform the operation, but they unfortunately got into a car accident while en route. It was left to the doctors on scene to perform the operation to save Huey's life. The doctor that was chosen to operate on Huey was Dr. Arthur Vidrine. Vidrine, who owed his job to Huey, did the best that he could, but he ultimately botched the operation. While it seemed as though Huey would pull through immediately following the conclusion of the procedure, his condition soon after began to deteriorate. Another operation was deemed necessary to fix Vidrine's mistake, but it was determined that Huey was too weak to undergo the trauma of yet another surgery. There was nothing that could be done for him. By the morning of the ninth, Huey was slipping in and out of a comatose state. He spoke wildly, as though he were seeing visions. Visions that, according to long biographer T. Harry Williams, consisted of, quote, the people out there, the poor people of America, a mass of faces staring at him, needing him, wanting to give him the power that he could use to help them. He saw the one gallus farmers of the hilllands of the South, the black and white sharecroppers of the vast cotton fields, the gaunt and debt-ridden farmers of the Great Plains, the unemployed factory workers of the Northeast, the small businessmen across the country pushed to the wall by big business, the pathetic elderly couples in countless towns and villages whose life savings had disappeared with the collapse of the banks, the fresh-faced boys and girls eager to gain an education. End quote. By the early morning of September 10th, 1935, Huey was fading fast. Just after 4 a.m. that morning, Huey Long. Surrounded by his closest family members and associates, died. His last words were reported to have either been, quote, "What will my poor LSU boys do without me?" End quote. or alternatively, quote, "God, please don't let me die. I have so much left to do." End quote. Huey's body lay in state in the Capitol building for two days, while some eighty thousand mourners filed by his casket to pay their respects. 200,000 people attended the funeral that was held on the afternoon of September 12th, making it the largest public gathering in the entire history of the state of Louisiana. Reverend Gerald L.K. Smith, nominal head of the Share Society, gave a moving funeral oration before Huey was at last laid to rest, directly in front of the capital he had built, where today there stands a magnificent statue of the man himself. The untimely death of Huey Long created a power vacuum in Louisiana state politics. The nature of his political organization was such that he did not often delegate power to his underlings. He had no right-hand man to speak of, and, dying unexpectedly as he did, did not deign to designate a successor. At first, Reverend Gerald Smith attempted to leverage his position as head of the Share Wealth Society into leading the political machine that Huey had left behind. However, Smith proved to be rather unpopular among Huey's other associates, who conspired to cut his salary and force him to leave the state. In 1936, Smith and the remnants of the Wealth Society allied with Francis Townsend and Charles Coughlin to form a third party to compete in the presidential election. The Union Party, as it was called, nominated North Dakotan Congressman William Lemke as their presidential nominee, but Lemke simply lacked Huey's dynamism and popularity. He and the Union Party garnered less than 2% of the popular vote. Franklin Roosevelt was re-elected in a landslide victory. With their defeat, both the Share Wealth Society and the Union Party effectively ceased to exist as political organizations. Huey's death did not, however, end the pro-long versus anti-long dynamic, which had characterized Louisiana state politics since he was elected governor back in 1928. Pro-Long and anti-Long factionalism remained a prominent factor in the state's politics well into the 1960s, although it must be noted that while the longest political machine remained quite a formidable force in state politics for decades after Huey's death, it would never quite have the same power and popularity as it did while he was still alive. In the 1936 gubernatorial election, one of Huey's more obscure underlings, a man named Richard Lecce, won handily against the anti-Long opposition. In order to increase his legitimacy as heir to the long administration, Lecce selected for his lieutenant governor Huey's brother Earl. Despite claiming the longest mantle for himself, Governor Lecce abandoned many of Huey's more radical projects and made peace with the Roosevelt administration. Governor Lecce's administration was also quite corrupt, even by Louisiana standards. He and a number of his cronies became involved in a number of scandals involving a whole host of corruption charges. Lecce eventually resigned the governorship in 1939, and the following year he was found guilty of mail fraud and sentenced to ten years in prison. He was pardoned after five. Lecce was succeeded by his lieutenant governor, Earl. Earl Long would go on to have a political career that was nearly as controversial as that of his late brother. During his three non-consecutive terms as governor of Louisiana, Earl made a seemingly conscientious effort to emulate his brother, adopting his colorful speaking patterns becoming embroiled in scandal after scandal, and promoting radical progressive policies. Earl died at 65 years old on September 5th, 1960, and the dominance of the longest political machine over state politics died with him. That being said, however, following Huey's death, a political dynasty emerged that outlived even Earl. Members of the Long family continued to win election to public office well into the second half of the 20th century, for instance, Huey's son Russell served as a United States senator from 1948 to 1987. Another member of the Long family who served in public office after Huey's death was, however unwillingly, his widow, Rose, who was appointed to serve the remainder of her husband's term in the Senate. Unlike her counterpart, Hattie Carraway, Rose did not seek re-election and dutifully served out the rest of her husband's term never to return to politics. To say that Huey Long left behind a rather controversial legacy would be an understatement. At the time of his death, Huey was simultaneously one of the most beloved and one of the most reviled figures in American politics. Those who were inclined to support him saw him as a populist champion of the working man, whereas his opponents saw him as a dangerous demagogue, who would, depending on the political orientation of the person you asked, would be the man to usher in either fascism or communism into the United States. I believe it is necessary to take a step back from ideology and try to look at things as objectively as possible. On the one hand, Huey Long did more for the people of Louisiana in his eight-year reign than any other man had been able to in the state's history. He oversaw massive infrastructure programs, including the construction of nearly 10,000 miles of new roads, 111 new bridges throughout the state, a modern state capitol building, and a new governor's mansion. He provided free textbooks to schoolchildren, provided adult literacy classes, and reformed Louisiana State University into a nationally ranked institution. He abolished the poll tax that kept many impoverished people disenfranchised and started a grassroots movement to eradicate income inequality. He seemed to possess a genuine concern for the common welfare, championing causes such as wealth redistribution at every opportunity he had. However, on the other hand, Huey's rule of Louisiana was at times blatantly autocratic. He ruled his state with an iron fist. He silenced dissenting voices, rigged elections, and was guilty of cronyism and nepotism. He had his political opponents bribed, coerced, arrested, and even kidnapped. Those on the right derided him as a communist. And while it is true that the share wealth program was redistributionist in nature, Huey furiously denied such claims. He never called for a complete reorganization of the American economy along socialist principles, and he never addressed the ownership of the means of production. Huey's detractors on the left called him a fascist, an equally spurious claim. Huey was by no means a white supremacist or a racist, something that makes him stand out among other southern politicians of the era. Furthermore, his redistributive policies spurned the attitude of social Darwinism that characterizes fascist political thought. Indeed, Huey long as a figure that defies easy ideological categorization. Although Huey was a household name in the early 1930s, after the assassination, he promptly faded from America's public consciousness. Today, the name Huey Long is primarily known in his own state, among historians, and in academic circles. Chances are, if you've learned anything about Huey in an academic setting, it has likely been in the context of his challenges to Roosevelt and the New Deal, and his potential 1936 presidential run. Speaking from personal experience, the first time I learned about Huey Long was as a high school sophomore in a U.S. history course. The main word that my teacher used to describe him was demagogue, and he was spoken of like the potential American equivalent of Mussolini or Hitler. Historical memory has not been very kind to Huey, and this is a view shared by many, even his contemporaries. His rise to national power is popularly viewed as a what-if scenario, a set of interesting counterfactuals. In 1935, author Sinclair Lewis wrote It Can't Happen Here, a novel in which a fictional southern demagogue defeats Roosevelt in the presidential election and institutes a fascist regime in the United States. While it was never explicitly mentioned in the novel, literary critics believe that this character, Brasilius Windrip, was based heavily on Long, and that the novel was written with the purpose of harming his chances in the 1936 presidential election. Other works written about Huey include All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, which features a fictionalized account of his life, as well as several biographies. What are your own thoughts on Huey Long? Does he deserve the reputation which history seems to have given him? Or, upon learning the whole story, does his legacy deserve some degree of rehabilitation? If you'd like to let me know your thoughts on this matter or if you have any other questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like for me to address, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticpod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always contact me via Facebook or Twitter, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. Additionally, if you've enjoyed this series and would like to help keep this podcast up and running, please consider making a donation to the show's Patreon page or purchasing some used books from me on eBay. Anyway, be sure to tune in again in two weeks as we travel back to Japan in the mid-19th century, where an unexpected arrival from an American fleet sets into motion a chain of events that would result in the collapse of the Tokugawa shogunate, and the restoration of Emperor Meiji, who would then embark on a series of ambitious reforms with the aim of reforming Japan into a modern, westernized state. Yes, our next series of seven parts will cover the Meiji Restoration. It's one of my favorite series I've written, and I'm quite excited to produce it and share it with you all. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.